Amen. Well, good morning and welcome on this uh, great high holy holiday of America, the Super Bowl Sunday, where everybody worships at the temple of the NFL. And so I'm glad you're here with us today. And uh, uh, I was thinking about uh, the Super Bowl. Uh, I personally don't really care which way it goes, but I want to give you a little Bible quiz if you are a football fan and uh, a fan of the Super Bowl. A little Bible quiz. How many times in the Bible, how many verses and occurrences do the word eagle occur? Eagles, okay? 33 times, depending on your version, of course. Uh, How many times does the word patriot occur? Zero. You heard it here first. Eagles 33, Patriot zero. But a little word of wisdom here. Don't place any bets this afternoon on what I just said. Okay. All right. We got that out of the way. Continuing with uh, the football theme, uh, some of you may remember the name Roy Regals. Roy Regals, also known as Wrong Way Regals. Uh, He played in the 1929 Rose Bowl. He was a center, what we call now a defensive uh, middle linebacker. Uh, But he played center for the University of California. And in the Rose Bowl, they were playing Georgia Tech. And in fact, you can look on YouTube, and there's a little video clip. Uh, There was a fumble by the Georgia Tech uh, uh, quarterback, and Roy Regals picked it up. And invading other tacklers, he ran the wrong way for 65 yards. And one of his teammates was chasing close after him and finally grabbed him at the one-yard line of the Georgia Tech goal line and tried to turn him around, and, of course, he got tackled. And then on the next play, uh, they suffered a safety, uh, which was two points. This was in the first half. And uh, at the end of the game, Georgia Tech won by one point. I think it was eight to seven. And so Roy Regals, for the rest of his life, was known as Wrong Way Regals. And uh, one author said of uh, a Regals said he had the instincts, but he didn't have the direction. And, uh, and it's quite humorous. And imagine, you can read about his story. He's an interesting guy, actually. But, you know, we're all kind of like that. We most of the time and sometimes have the right instincts, but sometimes we go the wrong direction and it's dangerous for us and for those around us. The Apostle Paul has been writing in this letter to the church at Ephesus, and remember, he has been detailing for us the wealth we have in chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians, and today we're coming to chapter 4, but remember that chapters 4, 5, and 6, which are the practical applications, if you will, or the uh, the decision applications, uh, uh, are based upon the wealth we enjoy in chapters 1 through 3. Uh, The little letter of Ephesians is written to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's writing to encourage them and to prevent troubles that may occur in those churches. Uh, Someone has called uh, this letter to the Ephesian church as the believer's bank account, the believer's bank account. Imagine, if you will, if you had a bank account, which you could make a withdrawal from any time you wished, in any amount you wished, and the account would never be diminished. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And that's what we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have in the book of Ephesians. This book reveals the riches of God in Christ Jesus to each believer, and it teaches us what we have because we are in Christ. In fact, that little phrase, in Christ, occurs many times in this letter. 
And in Ephesians, it shows us how to live out in the midst of these riches. This book is about riches. It talks about the riches of his grace in chapter 1, verse 7, the riches of the glory of the inheritance in his saints, chapter 1, verse 18, the riches of his mercy, chapter 2, verse 4, the surpassing riches of his grace in chapter 2, verse 7, the unsearchable riches of Christ, chapter 3, verse 8, the riches of his glory, chapter 3, verse 16, and we enjoy great fullness and the riches of Jesus Christ. We may not feel like it. We may not even think about it. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your position. This is how God sees you. This is what is designed for us. And then in light of those things, he wants us to live a certain way. The great Scottish expositor or teacher Alexander McLaren once wrote, and I'm quoting him, we may have as much of God as we want. Christ puts the key to the treasure chamber in our hand and bids us to take all that we want. If a man is admitted to the wealthy vault of the bank and told to help himself and comes out with one penny, whose fault is it that he is poor? And so this letter is also described as a cathedral of God's grace. And we have all been invited in, and as believers, we enjoy the blessings that have detailed for us in these first three chapters. And now as we approach chapter 4, he is calling upon us, God is calling upon us through the Apostle Paul to move from our position, from our wealth, to practice and live in light of what we own, what we have. It moves us from doctrine to decision. And, uh, you know, we are creatures that God has designed that have the ability to make choices. Some call that our free will. And so there's an aspect where we are not robots that God controls, but that we have the opportunities to make decisions in day-to-day life. So he's moving us from the doctrinal truths to the decisions that all of us have and must make. He moves us from our calling to our conduct. And so these are the place we start in chapter 4. The first word is therefore, and therefore refers back to all the wealth in chapters 1 through 3 and what the Apostle Paul has detailed for us in those verses. And then he appeals to us to live a life worth living, to live a life worth living. I don't think any one of us want to waste our lives. There's an aspect where we are driven, if you will, for significance and accomplishment and to live a life worth living. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, he's reminding them again that even though he's in prison in Rome, that he is under house arrest in Rome, awaiting to see Caesar, he is really a prisoner of the Lord. God in his sovereignty has designed his life in such a way that he knows that God has him right where he wants him to be. And he says, I implore you. In other words, he begs us. He implores you. This is deep on the apostle's heart. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He's appealing to us. And that word walk there is not the physical exercise of walking from one place to another, but it is the lifestyle. It is a metaphor that the apostle Paul uses for lifestyle. In other words, a life, if you have some versions translated as live a life worth living. And so to live a normal Christian life, because the doctrine has been proclaimed in chapters 1 through 3, and because we are called upon to live within the great position that we have. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, especially starting in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God's relationship with the nation Israel went something like this. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you obey me, I will bless you. And we see in the history of Israel, 
in the rest of the Old Testament that Israel would obey for a while. Then they would disobey and they would be disciplined. They went into captivity. But God's relationship with Israel in the Old Testament was obey me and I will bless you. In the New Testament, it is reversed with God and his church. He is telling us, I have blessed you, now obey me. I have blessed you, chapters 1 through 3, now obey me. Now make those decisions to live a life worth living, is what the Apostle Paul says, to live this worthy life. And he's begging us, he's pleading with us to live in this manner. I was reading about a man in Katy, Texas. His name is Dennis, and uh, he needed some same-day dry cleaning done. He was going on a business trip, so, and before he left on his trip, and he didn't have much time, he saw. Uh, he looked in the yellow pages and found a, a dry cleaning establishment, which was named One Hour Dry Cleaners. One Hour Dry Cleaners, and so he drove to the other side of town, dropped off his suit, filled out the tag, and then told the clerk, "I'll pick this up in an hour." She said, I can't get this back to you till Thursday. I thought you did dry cleaning in an hour. No, she replied, that's just the name of the store. And, you know, some of us who carry the name Christian but fail to act like one, uh, whose name we bear, constantly create confusion and disillusionment with those for you have yet to believe By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you love one another, Jesus said in John chapter 13. To live a normal life, the Apostle Paul is calling us on, to live a worthy life, and then thirdly, to live a balanced life, moving from position to practice. In other words, it it begins with head knowledge, and yet it lives out. What we believe is how we live out our lives, and live according to our call and our calling. Uh, That's the only thing that matters. The Apostle Paul is just introducing here, okay, you have all these belongings, these riches. Now I'm going to instruct you on how to live. And that's the thing that matters. But how do we do this? How do we do this? The Apostle Paul starts with attitudes, and then he moves into activities. But he starts with attitudes in verse 2. And there are five marks or five attitudes of a life that's worth living. Uh, Notice, first of all, the first mark in verse 2, you've been called with all humility. And so humility is the mark that is the mark of the attitude of a believer. And we have a misunderstanding of humility, I think. In fact, in the Greek and Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, humility was only for slaves and servants. It wasn't for people who were free. And uh, so it was contrary culturally what was going on there. And the Apostle Paul knows this, and he mentions it here. It's a a renouncing of our self-centeredness, basically. John R. W. Stott, the theologian and pastor from Great Britain, writes these words about humility in this passage. He said, the word means lowliness of mind, the humble recognition of the worth and value of other people, the humble mind which with Christ had that led him to empty himself and become a servant. Humility is essential to unity, Pride lurks behind all discord. When we serve others, we promote harmony within any fellowship we're involved with. The mark of humility. Uh, Another writer writes that uh, the humble person does not take offense or fight back. He turns the other cheek to the one who hits him. And yet humility is not cowardice, for humility requires high courage. Humility makes you willing to take a lower place than you deserve, to keep quiet about your merits, to bear slights, insults, and accusations for a higher purpose. Jesus displayed humility 
For it says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Evangelist uh, Dwight Lyman Moody from uh, the 19th century uh, wrote these words. He was referring to Moses. He said, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert realizing he was a nobody. And then he spent the last 40 years of his life learning what God can do with a nobody. And uh, Moses was referred to as a humble person. So the first mark is humility. The second mark found in verse 2 is gentleness. Gentleness, or some of your versions may have meekness there. And the word that's used there in other Greek writings of the day referred either to a soothing medicine, uh, to a horse, a colt that had been tamed, and to a soft wind. But when you think of all three of those elements, they're all elements of power which are under control. Power under control, and that is gentleness or meekness. It means the strong who have strength that is under control. Meekness is the absence of the disposition to assert our personal rights, either in the presence of God or of men. Uh, When I was much younger, there was a lion tamer who worked for the circuses named Gunther Gable Williams. Gunther Gable Williams, some of you may remember him, but he was the world-class lion tamer of uh, the wild cats. And he was the foremost uh, lion handler in the history of the circus. But you know what? He did not destroy the power of the lion, but he simply challenged its nature and challenged the nature of that big cat. The lion possessed the same ferocity, the same energy, will, power, and strength, but it was under the control of its master. Meekness is the quality of being under the control of our master. When the lion in me roars, I need to make sure that it's in defense of God and not in defense of myself. And boy, that's a challenge. I have a a personal habit that when I'm in something and my, you know, your stomach starts to roll around like, ugh, I'm getting angry. You can feel the anger start to well up. And uh, the question I try to ask myself is, um, am I getting upset or angry because God is being opposed or am I being opposed? And uh, I'm not always successful in that, but yet there is this aspect with we need to roar in defense of God, not of ourselves. How do we know if we are gentle or meek? Uh, It's an exercise of self-control. Does your anger find its uh, source in the dishonoring of God rather than yourself? Do you respond to the word of God no matter what? Do you always make peace? Do you receive criticism, just and unjust, without retaliation? That's a tough one there. Do you have a Christ-like attitude towards those who are not believers in Christ? Uh, Humility and gentleness. Humility and gentleness uh, form a natural pairing. They form a natural pairing. Jesus is described as gentle and lowly in heart in Matthew 11, verse 29. Listen about Jesus here. Think about him. He's the one who made the world. He's the one who flung the billions of galaxies into space. He's the one who calls every star by name, the one who preserves the innumerable orbits in their courses, the one who weighs the mountains and the balance and the hills on a scale. He's the one who takes up the islands as a very small thing. He's one who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. He's the one before whom the inhabitants of the earth are as grasshoppers. He is the one who says, I am meek and lowly. It's not about being powerless, but it is power under control. 
So humility, gentleness. The third mark is the mark of patience, the attitude of patience or long-suffering. We must renounce the tyranny of our own uh, agendas. Uh, I was thinking about, uh, I've told you before about the Quaker farmer. And uh, the Quaker farmer had a stubborn mule, and most farmers would get impatient and start to strike the mule in order to get them to work. But the Quaker's religion kept him from that kind of violence. And one day he was talking to his mule, which refused to work. Uh, he said these words, Thou knowest I can kick or hit thee, because that I cannot kick or hit thee because of my religion. Thou knowest I must be patient. But what thou don't knowest is that I can sell thee to a Baptist. So sometimes, uh, you know, this whole issue of long-suffering and patience, we're with the Quaker Quaker farmer there. Uh, Another writer has said, patience is something that you greatly admire in the driver and the car behind you, but not in the one ahead of you. And so remember that. Uh, To be long-tempered, when you think of that, long-suffering, long-tempered, Uh, We never give in to negative circumstances. It's patient endurance. Uh, It can take anything people can dish out, meekness applied. It accepts God's plan for everything. Jesus is the example. So we have humility, gentleness, patience. The fourth mark, the fourth attitude mark is the mark of tolerance or forbearance, where we renounce our rights, renouncing our rights. In this day and age, tolerance means the acceptance of anything Uh, except Christianity, it seems like. Uh, But tolerance and forbearance is the product of patience, which is the product of gentleness, which is the product of humility. So the mark of forbearance, bearing up under uh, the weight of the circumstances. Uh, The fifth mark is the mark of selfless love. Look again at verse 2 where he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. And the word used there for love is the, a Greek word agape, you've probably heard of that. In our English versions, uh, we have one word, love, that's a translation of three different uh, words in the Greek language. And one of them is eros, which means the love that takes. That's not this word here. Phileho, we think of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's the brotherly love of give and take. But then agape is the love that gives. It seeks the good for others at any cost. This is the love expressed by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary for you and for me. And that's the love here, those distinctions. So here we have the five foundation stones or the five attitudes of Christian unity. Humility results in gentleness, which gives birth to patience and produces forbearance resulting in selfless love. These mark out our lifestyle, which brings us to our activity in this passage. Verses 3 through 6 moves us from attitudes is where it begins in our mind, but how do we live this out? It's an activity of a life worth living. First of all, we're to spare no effort to maintain unity. Look at verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Being diligent means to endeavor, to make haste, uh, to uh, have a holy zeal demanding full dedication. It is a a laborious work to maintain the unity. We don't need to pray for unity because if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, according to Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians. And so each believer has the Holy Spirit of God, and God cannot be divided. So when there is division, when there is discord, when there is upheaval in a church, uh, it's because one or the other or both parties are, are in sin. 
because the Holy Spirit will not be divided. We are to work at being unified around what God has told us. Unity is not uniformity. Some churches mistake this and say we all must look alike, act alike, be alike. That's uniformity, kind of like the military. But here it is unity, genuine unity around God, uh, what he has done and what he's doing that. And why should we do that? Why should we be diligent? Because there are seven spiritual realities listed in verses 4 through 6. First of all, look at verse 4. There is one body. It says there's one body. And he's talking about the body of Christ, the universal church. Begun in Acts chapter 2, we're a continuation of that today. Uh, We have saints who have gone on before us. They're in heaven, the church uh, triumphal, if you will, and then the church here. Uh, in, 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 in our day and age. And so there's one body, and he tells us there is one spirit, the Holy Spirit, which brings us together. There is one hope of the believer's calling. We have one hope, and that hope refers to the basic gospel message that believers have a future and a hope because of what Jesus Christ has done. The fourth spiritual reality is because of the Son. There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism. There is one Lord Jesus Christ that he refers to here in verse 5. And the faith is this collective faith of millions of people who've gone before us since Acts chapter 2 and the ones around the world today that we believe in the fundamentals of the faith uh, of who Jesus Christ is, that he died to save us from our sins, that he's preparing a place in heaven for us. There's one faith. There's not 2,500 like in Hinduism. There's one faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, one baptism. There's an argument about whether this refers to water baptism or the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we see in Romans chapter 6. I tend to fall on the side of water baptism because it's a unifying factor, a declaration of an inner spiritual reality. And then finally, there is one God and Father in verse 6. He's over all believers, through all believers, in all believers. And so there is this unity, and that's why we are to be diligent to maintain the unity because God knows, and the Apostle Paul will get to it later also, that we have an ability to uh, be in discord uh, if we so choose to do that. Uh, here this month, we are going to be starting uh, this Winter Olympics, and uh, many of you will maybe watch at least the highlights of the Winter Olympics and uh, February, many people will be glued to their televisions watching the Winter Olympics, and it promises always to be a great sports spectacle. Uh, uh, But these athletes all want to succeed in why they were called there. And uh, the Olympic athlete wants to use their talents, their skills, their body and mind, and their experience and knowledge and training. They set goals, they stay focused, they persevere, and uh, they want to finish the race And for each one of us, you know, we are on a race, if you will. The Apostle Paul uses that athletic metaphor about uh, running the race of faith. And uh, maybe it's not as obvious for us as it is uh, for some. Uh, But I was thinking about powerful perseverance. And I was thinking of the 1968 Summer Olympic Games held in Mexico City. And uh, there was a man named Mamel Rold, who was an Ethiopian runner, And he won the men's marathon and won gold in that, an amazing feat for him. And well over an hour later, after all the medals were awarded, the athletes had returned to the locker rooms and the audience was clearing out of the stadium, a curious uh, murmur uh, rumbled through the seats and through the stands. 
The crowd noted that there were sirens and flashing lights and television crews running to the entrance of the arena there in Mexico City. There was one lone man limping onto the track. His name was John Stephen Akwari. He was from Tanzania. He was the last runner in on the marathon, and he was running slowly, obviously in pain from some injuries he had received from a spill and a pileup at the halfway point of the race. His uh, leg was ga badly gashed, and his knee was damaged. He was bandaged up, and he was holding a bruised shoulder, but he was moving towards the finish line. When he entered the arena and began the final lap of his marathon experience, the crowd began shouting and clapping and whistling, cheering the late-arriving uh, runner as he limped around the track. Later on, uh, the sports analyst asked Steve, uh, uh, this man, Steve, John Stephen Akwari, why he didn't give up halfway through the race. He said, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to the Olympics to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. John Stephen Akwari knew his purpose in college. He, he persevered and he finished well. For all of us on this race of life, the Apostle Paul, God himself, Jesus Christ, is concerned that we finish well. And so he's going to equip us as we go through chapters 4, 5, and 6 on how to apply the wealth that we have as believers and how do we finish well. As the men come up to serve the Lord's table, uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and for your blessing.